eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. We have stuck it to the Miami Marlins. Does it make up for 2007? Does it make up for 2008? No. But the New York Mets play a series that mattered to the Marlins, didn't matter to the Mets in the standings, and we whipped that ass, winning two out of three against Miami. Very entertaining couple of days down in Miami. We got a lot to get to. We'll talk about the three games the latest on Edwin Diaz not pitching, the latest on Shohei Otani and what his immediate future looks like, the odd Pete Alonso rumor and then rumor killer, and then obviously one of the big stories of the last couple of days around our baseball team, the raising of ticket prices. Season ticket prices go up, partial plans, they basically give you less. We'll explore what we know, a lot of the reaction to it, and to me, what the Mets have to do to make it right. But let's start with this series. Three games against the Marlins. It is odd. It's not something we're used to. To have the Mets playing the Marlins in September and the games mattering for them and not mattering for us. That's a very rare thing. Uh, I guess 2003 may be the only example. Because even in 1997, when they won their first wild card and eventual World Series, we were in that fugazi pennant race. We actually thought we were playing meaningful baseball. So outside of 03, this is a rarity. And I, I kind of exclude 2020. I don't even think that one counts. But usually, they're the ones trying to play the spoiler. You know, we always think back to 07 and 08 specifically because we ended the regular season against them. It ended so badly in very similar fashion, losing on Friday, getting our tees on Saturday, and then losing on Sunday. But I actually think of that emotional game, an emotional series the Mets played against Miami in 16 after the shocking and unfortunate passing of Jose Fernandez where the Mets are playing the Marlins. It's insanely emotional. And the Mets are playing games that matter. Mets were playing important games in those three games against Miami. But these three games matter to them. For us, you know, it's the same story, trying to evaluate 2024. And when you go to Monday's game, the opener of this series, the big evaluation that is certainly getting our attention is the pitching of Jose Buto. Jose Buto, since he's been recalled a couple of weeks ago, has now thrown good game after good game after good game. What he does on Monday is another six great innings. He strikes out six. His changeup continues to look awesome. He only allows one run. It did look like he allowed three runs, when Jorge Soler hits that ball that is initially called a two-run home run that gave the Marlins the lead, and then eventually they call a foul. That whole sequence, which, which was really the most important play of the game, if we're being honest, was so strange because of the fact that off the bat, I don't know how everyone else felt about it, but off the bat, I kind of thought it was fair. Like, that was my initial feeling. And they called it fair, and it's a three-to-one game, and it kind of ruined, in a weird way, Budo's outing. Because think about it at the time. It's the sixth inning. He's allowed one run. He had not recorded an out yet in the sixth inning. So all of a sudden, it turns into a five-inning, three-run game, kind of like what ended up happening to Lucchese a couple days later. When the umpires met 
what I thought was going to happen was they were going to say, yeah, we called it a home run. We'll review it, but on the field, it's going to remain a home run. And then when you review these plays where it's really impossible to see, if we're being honest, how do you overturn it? It doesn't feel like a call that really can be overturned because there's no evidence one way or the other that's going to tell you the original call was wrong. So the umpires meet about it. When they change their mind and call it foul, I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, they're not going to do it again. They're not going to reverse it again because there's not going to be anything on the video review that's going to tell you you should reverse it again. So I think the Mets, in a weird way, got like a big break, if we're being honest. And if you watch it, and I've watched it a couple of times, I admit, I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know. I, I thought it was a home run, and maybe that's the negativity of I'm rooting it for it not to be called a home run, but it was so high and so deep down the left field line that you really couldn't tell. I've always thought one of the weird ideas I've had, and I know I don't know how often it would impact a play, but I guess it could here, is to paint fair territory down the line one color, foul territory another color, and then have that extend up to whatever wall is there. I always thought in theory, that wouldn't that make it easier if... Let's say it's red, well, green in fair territory, red in foul territory, and you just don't make it the seats. It goes up to a degree. I mean, it's not going to go all the way up, but it goes up a little bit because in the case of Solaire's ball, it did bounce off a back wall. But wouldn't that make it easier to see? I don't know. I just, I'm just <laughs> That's actually a thought I had when I was five. So I haven't grown out of that opinion. But bottom line was the Mets got a break. And to Budo's credit, he goes out and he strikes out Solaire. He got Josh Bell out. He got Jazz Chisholm out. And he worked his way through the sixth inning. So Jose Budo was the star. And here's what's so weird about Jose Budo. Jose starts the year at Syracuse. He had almost a full year at Syracuse. He made 19 starts in AAA. He pitched to a 5.93 ERA. He was not good. He was not effective. He was not Christian Scott. You know, he wasn't showing us he should come up here. And yet, at the major league level, since his recall specifically, he's been really, really good. So what do you make out of it? You know, and in fairness, so Budo made his first start of the year all the way back in April against the A's. And if you recall in that start, he put a million guys on base. We call that the McGill. But he was able to fight through it. And he only gave up one run. He made another start right after that against Washington, and it was very similar. He walked six guys in that start, and there were 10 base runners over the course of four and two-thirds innings, but he miraculously got out of it and only gave up two runs, and that was it for Budo. He got sent back down. He came back up, made a relief appearance in May, made a relief appearance in August. So his season this year was really nothing other than those lousy numbers I gave you at AAA. He gets recalled first week of September. And so this sample size that we're talking about are three starts. The Nationals on the road, the Diamondbacks at City, and obviously the Marlins in game one of this series. Over the course of those three starts, he has pitched 17 and a third innings, and he's allowed four runs, and he has struck out 19 guys. I don't think three starts should earn him a rotation spot. But it should earn him, as I said last time, kind of that swing guy option in 2024. I don't know if three starts is enough. And he'll get one more. Or actually, he may get two more now that I think about it. Because if he started Monday, his next start would be Saturday in Philadelphia. And then he'll make another one on the final homestand of the season, presumably against the Phillies again. So I guess that'll be interesting. Two more starts against a really good Phillies team. But again, like even if he's great in those two starts, would five starts at the major league level be enough for any of us to say, that's a guy in the rotation? No, it's more, I'm going to give him a deeper thought in spring training next year. But major kudos to him. Obviously, they then win the game in the ninth inning. Jeff McNeil hits a home run, which he hasn't done a lot of this year. Though Jeff has had a effective second half of the year. His batting average is up to 270-ish. And his OPS is over 700. And his defense all over the place has been great. We saw that in the finale of this series. More on that later. McNeil hits the home run. 
The Met bullpen doesn't implode. Adam Adovino gives you a clean ninth. And the Mets win a nice opener against the Marlins 2-1. to one. Key was Met bullpen didn't implode. Because after Budo gives you the six innings, Grant Hartwig gives you a clean inning. Phil Bicker, Bickford gives you a clean inning. And the Mets win a baseball game. So it was a nice start. It was a nice start to the series. Game two of this series is another test. Another guy that we're taking a look at saying, all right, what can his role be next year? And that's Joey Lucchese. So Joey Lucchese did, in a lot of ways, what Jose Budo may have done if that Soler ball was called a home run. First four innings, he's allowed one run. It's a 1-1 game. Lucchese's giving you like another solid pitching performance. You're feeling pretty good about that. And then he runs into trouble in the fifth inning. Gives up that leadoff double to Birdie. Hits four tests. Gives up that weird bunt hit to Xavier Edwards in which I don't know what Joey Lucchese's doing. I mean, this was this error, and it turned out to be an unearned run in the fifth inning that gave the Marlins the lead, was just, I have to admit, it made me laugh. And I'm not laughing if, you know, this is a pennant race. <laughs> in fact, this game, game two of this series against the Marlins, causes me no sleep if it's a pennant race. I tweeted after the game, this was a brutal loss. I know these games don't matter. It was a brutal loss. Luckily, these brutal losses are a little bit easier to get over. But in the fifth inning, Lucchese fields that bunt off Edwards' bat. Ronnie Mauricio, who's playing third base, is right next to him because he's coming in to make the play. Lucchese picks up the baseball. Mauricio's almost in his way, and he throws to third base with not a soul near third base. Not a soul. And obviously the run scores. And the Mets get a break because for some reason Xavier Edwards is trying to go to second and he's thrown out. And to Lucchese's credit, see, this is where I give him a lot of credit. He shows up somebody. I don't know who the hell he showed Maybe he showed up himself by putting his arms up in the air. Maybe he was upset with himself thinking he was an idiot. But he got through the inning. Like that inning could have turned out to be a hell of a lot worse. Instead, the Marlins took the two-to-one lead. He got the next two outs. The problem was... He ran into trouble in the sixth. He gives up the RBI single to Garrett Hampson. He gets replaced, can't get through the sixth inning. And now, instead of what could have been what Budo did, which is six innings, one run, which you feel really good about, Lucchese gives you the five and two-thirds, three runs, two earned, leaves the game with the team behind. It was not a bad start by any stretch. It was an unearned run, even though it was his fault. And I'm a, I'm a geek for, well, then shouldn't it be earned against him? He was the one who made the error. Sorry, that's one of my that's one of my geeky scorekeeping issues. But the other problem in this game, besides the Lucchese miscue in that fifth inning, was the fact that the Mets had opportunities. They had a lot of opportunities in this game to score runs against Miami, including right off the jump in the top of the first inning with a chance to set the tone for this game against Blake Garrett, who has pitched very well recently. And overall, has had a pretty good year. The Mets get the first two guys on base. Nimmo leads off with a single. Our guy, Ronnie Mauricio, rips a double. They have second and third nobody out with Pete, Lindor, and Alvarez, and they get nothing. Pete strikes out. Lindor hits a ground ball to shortstop. Nimmo's running on contact. He's out by a mile. And then Alvarez, with a chance to clean it up, grounds out to third base. So they had the opportunity right in front of them to get off to a really good start, they didn't. And Garrett ended up pitching you know, a pretty damn good game. He pitched very well. The only run, excuse me, the Mets got in this game was when, I think it was Francisco Lindor singled back to the mound. And I think Garrett made an error. And that's how they got the run. So it was an ugly, ugly run that got him on the board. But... Here's where this game got painful. This is why this is the worst loss of the year. It's not even, I, I take that back, not the worst loss of the year. <laughs> Sorry. That's emotional speaking. That's, I, I'll, I'll reframe it. That's the worst loss of September. Is that better? <laughs> the worst loss of the period of the season that really doesn't mean anything. They are down to their final out in the ninth inning. If you're hanging in on this game, the Mets have given you a reason to believe. McNeil leads off the ninth with a double. Vientos rips a single. And after DJ and LeCastro do nothing, second and third, 
two outs, down by two. Like, here we go. Final shot with Brandon Nimmo up at the plate. And I'm kind of tired. I'm also watching the football games. There's two of them at the time. Actually, no, that was the night before. I wasn't watching the football game. That That was the first game of the series. I guess I was just tired. And what does Nimmo do as I'm ready to go to bed and just give up? He rips a double to tie the game up. But I thought this at the time after Nimmo ripped the double. And sometimes I do have this thought, or maybe it's because I was tired. Ronnie Mauricio needed to drive him in. If if Ronnie doesn't drive him in, I wasn't sure if it was going to be in the bottom of the ninth, but I felt like we're not winning this game. And Ronnie ends up grounding out on a ball that off the bat I thought was getting through for an RBI single. Speaking of Ronnie, before we get to that bottom of the ninth and the debacle that that was, I thought he looked very good at third base. I thought he showed some good range. I thought he made a couple of good plays. The bunt play with Luke Casey, I, I'm not putting it on him. Yeah, I'm not putting that on him. I, that's really on Joey. I mean, Ronnie's coming in to make a play on a bunt, and Luke Casey's thinking somebody's at third base. I do think in the small sample size, and it is a very small sample size, he looks better at second, but when you look at his body, he feels like a third baseman, long, rangy guy. <clears throat> but I thought he looked good over there. And I think that his position is just going to be about you know, who's hitting and who's not hitting. You know, Brett Beatty showed a little promise in the finale of this series when he hit a home run. But if Brett Beatty's not the everyday third baseman next year, there's a better chance, as we talked about last time, Ronnie's going to be the guy. But I did think he looked very good defensively at third base. But let me get to the bottom of the ninth. Because as soon as Trevor Gott comes into the game, replacing the immortal Reed Garrett, who actually did a fairly good job, this game's over. The, the impression I had was, this game is over. And the first pitch he throws, first pitch, he hits Nick Fortes, the eighth place hitter. First pitch. Like, we're not going to waste any time. We're not effing around. I'm just going to drill the leadoff hitter. Next guy, I think it was Xavier Edwards again, lays down the bunt. They walk Solaire, fine, whatever. Gurriel grounds out, and here we go. Second and third, two outs, tie game. You do have the option, though, with Jake Berger coming up. Do you face him, or do you face Brian De La Cruz? For whatever reason, and I'm not sure how many people listening to this podcast is going to like remember this, or even correct me on this, because this is just pure memory. I don't remember the situation. But when the Yankees blew the game to the Marlins earlier this year, maybe their worst loss of the season, wasn't there a should they face Berger versus should they face De La Cruz question? For some reason, <laughs> the whole there's a base open. Do you go after Berger? Do you go after De La Cruz? Feels so eerily familiar. Maybe over the course of this pod, I'm going to look that one up. Because I feel like that's one of the questions the Yankees faced. If you recall, the Yankees had a series this year against the Marlins in which they had this just awful loss on a Sunday. They lost the game 8-7. to seven. They had a big, big lead late. They gave up five runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. They actually blew, if you want to go further, a 7-2 to two lead in the bottom of the eighth inning. And for some reason... Do you face Berger versus do you face De La Cruz feels very, very familiar in that game. All right, I looked it up. I have the answer. Now I can fact check myself. So Berger did get the game-winning hit. So Berger does have a game-winning hit against the Yankees. He does have a game-winning hit against the Mets. But I am wrong. It wasn't De La Cruz on deck. It was Jesus Sanchez. That was the question. Do you face Berger, who's had a very good year, or do you face Sanchez? All right, that was close. Wasn't that far off? But anyhow, bottom of the ninth inning, they're facing Berger, and then you have that foul pop-up that I actually feel bad for Alvarez about. Again, pennant race, I'm cursing Alvarez out. Non-pennant race, I'm a compassionate guy. Because when he couldn't grab that foul pop-up, he was so furious. He Alonzoed it. You know how furious Pete gets? We saw that in the previous series when he swatted away on Narvaez's hand because he was so upset. That's what Francisco did. Francisco was not happy. And Alvarez, if I'm going to nitpick him, 
and find areas where he has struggled in his rookie year, making the, the pop-up behind the plate was a struggle. And it cost them the game. Well, let's not sugarcoat it. It cost them the game. He makes that play, and he should make that play. Not the easiest play in the world, but if he makes that play, top of the 10th inning, Ronnie Mauricio on second base, let's go. Who knows what happens? The count is 0-2. This is where my blame kind of goes back to Trevor Gott. You're ahead 0-2. Can you make burger chase? Can you try? And instead, right down the middle, base hit center field, shut the game off, go to bed. And I, I was pissed. I was pissed for about a minute. That's where I'm at now. I get annoyed. I still want to see my team win. For what reason? Who the hell knows? But you're watching your team. And a game that felt winnable for many, many reasons. So the pain lasted for a minute. Tell me how long your pain lasted, if at all. <laughs> if, if you saw the game live or you just checked the highlights after. But that's a tough way to lose. That's a very Mets way to lose. I was debating, though, also, during the offseason, we're going to do a pod, Pete and I, ranking the best wins and the best losses. We did that last year. We'll do it again, no matter what the season was. And I was like, where would this game even be? Because it is September. It is over. Like, where, where would we even put a game like this? I'm not sure. I'll give you, I'll give you an answer when we do it. It's not going to be number one, I can tell you that. Uh, we get to the finale of this series. Kodai Senga was Kodai Senga. That's what it comes down to. He wasn't his sharpest. He wasn't his most dominant. He actually only struck out three guys in this game, allowed a home run in the sixth to Josh Bell, put a bunch of guys on base, but just another strong six-inning, two-run performance by Kodai, putting a capper on this season. I know he has one more star, but what a great year Kodai's had. His ERA is down to 296 the offense was really about Mark Vientos. I mean, Mark Vientos, who has shown a pulse in his second go-around, I don't think he's won a job by any stretch, but he's, he's looked better. He hits two home runs in this game. The second one was a bomb. Brett Beatty hits a home run in this game. Pete Alonso drives in a couple of runs, sack fly, a rip single. You had that weird play where, for some reason, after Ronnie Mauricio singles and Nimmo's going first to third, you've got the Marlins right fielder, Jesus Sanchez, trying to throw to third base. It turned into a comedy of errors that handed the Mets a run. Brandon Nimmo had three hits to make his overall stats look pretty good. And the Mets pounded out eight runs and 10 hits. Bullpen scares you a little bit, but they hold on and they win the game eight to three. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The other takeaway from this game is even though McNeil went 0 for 4, Jeff McNeil reminded us of where his value really lies besides being a good hitter. And he is a good hitter who's not having a great offensive season. I don't think there's any question. And his final numbers are going to be mediocre. Right now he sits at 267, 705 OPS, 10 home runs. Very, very mediocre year. But... Jeff's versatility and then his ability to be really good defensively at the corner outfield spots and at second base is so valuable, especially on a team where you're looking to kind of find out where guys fit and what guys deserve to play every day. Jeff McNeil is very, very valuable. I know we've talked about him as that's a guy you could trade. That's a trade chip. Like any trade, what are you getting back? Like, what are you trading Jeff McNeil for? Like, if you turn around, and I'm giving you a complete hypothetical. I'm not saying this trade would happen, but I'm thinking back towards last year in the offseason, the Arise-Lopez deal. Like, if you got a Pablo Lopez for Jeff McNeil, a part of me says, well, the Mets could really use starting pitching. And if you're getting, let's say, a controllable guy in his late 20s, that seems like a steal. But then you got to remind yourself that Jeff McNeil's really tough to replace. Because what are you, you're replacing him with a second baseman? 
You're replacing him with a right fielder? Because he's both. And he's good at both. Obviously, you need more from him offensively. He did not have a great offensive year. And I think when we're blaming why this season, where went, where it went, he's not necessarily going to be number one on the list, but he's on the list. And we talked about it at the All-Star break. Even though Marte has been forgotten about, Marte and McNeil were two of the bats that underachieved at a very high level in the first half of this season. McNeil obviously has moved ahead. He plays every day. He's looked so good defensively, but he's very, very, very valuable. And I think that was a reminder in the finale of this series about how good defensively he can be no matter where you stick him. So nice win. Mets win the series against Miami, damaging their playoff hopes. And they move on for a four-game series against the Phillies. Uh, The other things that came out this week, number one, Edwin Diaz isn't going to pitch in 2023. Fine. (coughs) What I've always said about that was if it's important to him to prove he can come back, if he feels like that's big going into the offseason and the doctors deem that there's no risk towards it, I don't have an issue with it. Obviously, the Mets thought it was too risky. No Edwin Diaz, no big deal. He's obviously essential. So essential for 2024. Again, when we assign the blame list for why and how this season went bad, that Diaz injury is going to be very high up on the list. Otani. So we have more clarity with Shohei Otani. According to his surgeon and his agent, (laughs) he plans on hitting next year. He will be a full-time DH. There will be no restrictions. He plans on pitching and doing both in 2025. I don't believe this changes a lot in terms of the interest level around Major League Baseball. I think the attitude we have to have about Otani, and every team has to have about Otani, is that there's a really good chance he doesn't do both for a lot of this contract. Let's say it's a, want to say it's a 10-year deal, 8-year deal. Let's just go 10 because he's going to demand a lot of years. So if you go 10 years, how many years of him doing both at a relatively high level, would you say he has to do for you to say this worked? And don't tell me they got to win a World Series because that's dependent on a lot of other things. You know what I mean? I think back to when Garrett Cole signed his contract with the Yankees. I remember having this discussion with Ernie, our producer at the time. And I said, hey, Ernie, he wins a Cy Young every year. Yankees don't win a World Series. And he's like, it's a bust. I was like, well, that's not fair. He's one guy. Like, what if he's great every year? But the team doesn't win. And that's not necessarily on him. So I wouldn't judge or try to answer that question with, well, did they win? Obviously, if the Mets win a World Series, we'll be happy with anybody that's on the roster. But I kind of look at that and say, if he gives me three of 10 years in which he's good at both, and in those other years he's a full-time DH and he's the slugger that he's proven to be over the last few years, I think I'd sign for that. I think that would be enough, especially if he's going to give you the offensive numbers that's even close to what he gave you this year. Because let's say you have to pay this man $60 million a year because, well, top pitchers make 30, top hitters make 30. Let's say next year, or I know next year you're expecting him not to pitch, but three years from now, one of the years of the deal, he's making $60 million a year. He does not pitch due to an injury, but he hits 45 home runs, drives in 95 runs, and has a 1,000 OPS. Sure, he's overpaid, quote-unquote, because you're paying him to do both, but is any of us going to be disappointed with a year like that? I look at Otani as, I don't think lottery ticket's the right word because most lotteries you don't win. In the case of Otani, the worst-case scenario is he's a really good offensive player. The best case scenario is you've got both. Look, bottom line is, would I go after Otani? Yes. I think any owner with money should be the try to be the highest bidder for this guy. Like, I'd be mad at Steve Cohen if he's not the highest bidder. I'd be mad at my owner if he's not the highest bidder. He may not want to play here, and if he doesn't, fine. You move on. I do have one concern. One concern that scares me. I want everybody to think about this. And ask yourself, are you okay with this? Mets sign Otani 
they trade Pete Alonso. They replace Alonso in the short term with CJ Crone, who's not had a good year and has missed a lot of time. I'm just using him as a, an option, a cheap right-handed replacement for Pete in the short term. Otani's the big bat. They get all the prospects. Are we good with that? Because from a baseball standpoint, in the short term, you can rationalize, well, whoever you replace Pete with isn't as good but isn't bad. You've added four prospects and you have Otani. I don't know if I'd be okay with it. I kind of lean towards no. And a lot of that's emotional. A lot of that is, I want Pete on this team. And I, as much as they should go after Otani, I don't want this to become an either-or. It shouldn't be an either-or. I wouldn't say I've got Otani, I don't need Pete. I'd say, holy crap, I got both. What a one-two punch. Can you imagine a middle of the order of Lindor, Otani, and Pete? And then whatever Mauricio turns into. And a complimentary piece like Jeff McNeil and Brandon Nemo. I guess I talk myself into worries. And a part of that worry comes from what happened on Wednesday. On Wednesday, Pat Ragazzo filed a report for SI that the Mets and Pete are talking about a contract. Great. I've always said that's the best news. You want to hear that they're talking because it means there's a mutual interest. And Pat's report said they're good on money. They're far away on years. I read that. I feel very good. I say to myself, okay, that's a great sign that there is not only a mutual interest between the two parties for making this work, but, (coughs) excuse me, but wow, they're not even that far off. That's great. And then out of absolute nowhere, Anthony DeComo puts out a statement from Billy Epler. And listen to this statement. While we understand the media and public interest in player contract situations, we strongly believe in keeping those conversations private. Any circulating reports do not accurately reflect our conversations with Pete. What's the need to put that out? That report that came out was positive. Like nobody took that report and said, oh my God, this is bad. Hearing that parties are close on money, but eh, they're far away on years, Reeks of a, okay, they're going to find common ground, or at least I hope they'll find common ground. Like, I didn't take that report as a negative, so why does Billy Epler feel the need to come out immediately and say, hey, those reports do not accurately reflect our conversations? Maybe I'm being too negative. Maybe I just didn't want to hear something like that, but it kind of bothered me. kind of bothered me a little bit. They got to get this done. I'm not going to spend that much time on this, on this, Rico, because I know we spend a lot of time on it all the time, but get the freaking thing done. Let's not F around. Let's not F around. Now, let me get to some of these emails, and then we'll get to the season ticket stuff, because I know it does bother a lot of people. Uh, number one, Emmanuel writes, Pete Alonzo, Pete Alonzo. <laughs> okay, we'll talk a little bit more about Pete. So glad to hear Alonzo and the Mets might be close to a deal. I think Stearns might have something to do with it since he clearly likes him if Milwaukee wanted to trade for him at the deadline, right? Let's hope that's the case. No, because even though Stearns was an advisor for the Brewers, I doubt, since everybody knew he was going to join the Mets, that there was any involvement with the Brewers at the deadline. So I would not read into that. Emmanuel goes on to write, one thing that's been bothering me all year is how much I've been hearing Alonzo is having a down year. Yet his average is down, but his OPS is very similar. He's currently at 846, which is down a bit because he's had a bad week. But before that, his OPS was 862, which is pretty much identical to last year. Mind you, he's doing this with a bum wrist that who knows if he's ever even allowed it to properly heal. If you look at his numbers in the month of June, by far his worst month of the year, that's when he got hit. He at 152 with a 584 OPS for June, was essentially made his numbers of the year look far worse than they would have been if he would have just taken the month off. So essentially, because he was selfless and wanted to get back out there ASAP for the team, he hurt himself numbers-wise, and everyone has been down on him for it. Whether coming back early was the right move or not, It shows fight, a willingness to play through injuries, which in my books is the type of player you want to pay, not even mentioning the fact that he's had Vogelback to be his main protection all year long, and he still produced 45-112 after that. 
I would say that this is a good year. So a couple things to respond to that. <laughs> yeah, it's I like that he came back. I think it's funny how sometimes we react to players being playing injured and not performing well. Like when Carlos Beltran does that in his first year as a Met, we kill him. <laughs> you know, we, we, we kill him. We don't love that. Pete does it. We celebrate it. I think what's going to hurt him is that that month was the month. That was the month that sank the Mets. So whether it was because he came back early and it was the wrist issue, he was still a major part of that team crumbling. The other thing is, if you look at his numbers, while this has not been a bad year, I would never call 45-114 a bad year. His career average, which actually is only 253, but a lot of it was brought down by this season and even the 60 games he played in 2020, because last year he had 270. The year before that, he had 262. The rookie year he had, he had 260. So while his average in his career is 253, he's better than that, in my opinion, certainly over the full years. His strikeouts are up from last year. His doubles are down from last year. His overall hits are down from last year. But he has hit more home runs, which is great. It's, it's just that I think anyone who watched them all year, and this is what's funny about it, because... Like, you're not wrong with what his final numbers are going to look like, of course, depending on what number you want to look at. You want to look at OPS, look, he finishes strong. His OPS is going to be right there to last year. And to your point, it's going to be close to his career average, which is 876. He's sitting at about 850. I think if you watched him every day this season, it was not the best of Pete Alonso. And that's a compliment to him. Because for us to say that, about a guy that's at 45-114 with an 850 OPS, that's pretty damn good. Nick Stasiak writes, Thursday's game. You may be listening to this podcast on Thursday, tonight's game. Not sure if you've noticed this, but the Mets-Phillies game on Thursday is a Fox game. I did notice that. But with the Giants on Thursday night football, locally we get that game on Fox instead of having to watch it on Amazon. I checked my guide and it shows the Giants on Fox at 8. Are we not able to watch the Mets game? Wait a second. Now now, now you're scaring me a little bit. You're right that when a local football team like the Giants are playing the Thursday night game, or the Jets play the Thursday night game, they will always have it on a local channel. Now I'm going to go to my guide right now. I have DirecTV Stream. And I'm going to take a look at the schedule tomorrow for Fox and see, is he, is he right? Are we getting the giant simulcast and we may be stuck without the Mets, which would be so devastating. No Mets Phillies and we're stuck with the Giants against the Niners? All right, according to my DirecTV stream. Holy crap, he's right. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. <coughs> I see New York Giants at San Francisco 49ers. Right, hold on. Let's look at FS1. Maybe FS1 will have us that game. If I take a look. The Carton Show. 7 a.m. What's that? No. We're not on FS1. Right, let me check FS2. Are we on FS2? No. All right, now you got me worried. We may not have a Met game on TV. <laughs> Will there be an outcry? Will, will we freak out? Is it going to be just me, Nick, and five other people saying, wait a second, where's the Met game? The Giants are bumping them off? That's a great point, Nick. I will look into this some more. And I will have an updated answer on the Thursday edition of Evan and Tiki. If you're listening to this too late, I apologize. I'm sure you already know the answer. Peter Lopez writes, the guys on Fox mentioned that Senga could get some Cy Young votes. Do you have any thoughts? We touched on this on the last Rico. He is, to me, finishing in third. So, yes, he will get Cy Young votes. Maybe not first place Cy Young votes, but he's in the top three, man. No question. Do want to correct something. Mike Berry was the one to bring it to my attention. The idea that Daniel Vogelback is gone at the end of the year. I suggested that on the last Rico. He's done. I am incorrect. He has one more year of arbitration. How about that? So thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. 
And I think uh, he was called a nerd on Evan and Tiki because he corrected me with this information. Mike said, please don't call me that. Either call me Mike from PA or Baseball Mike. <coughs> I didn't call you a nerd. That was probably Tiki. That son of a, you know what. Fred Solomon writes, is this version of Nimmo the new normal? He has no business leading off, especially in today's faster game. What about Mauricio getting some work as the leadoff hitter down the stretch? At the very least, he'll show run, something that Nimmo refuses to do, except for that game in Colorado. Put Nimmo in his power fifth or sixth and lengthen that lineup and get some speed at the top. Your thoughts? So it's really interesting, Fred. I have been, over the last decade, I guess now, a big proponent that the only thing that matters from a leadoff hitter is on-base percentage. For, for, for really, I think, fair reasons. I just want you to get on base. That's it. I want you to get on base. I got my RBIs com- got guys coming up next. Your job is squarely to get on base. We don't live in the world of Ricky Henderson anymore where you're going to steal second and third. Well, guess what? We do live in that world. That world is back. In 2023, the stolen base came back. So we have to reevaluate that about Brandon Nemo. Brandon Nimmo still had far and away, it's not even close, the highest on-base percentage on this team. As of this moment, uh, and this may be outdated by one day, the stats, but bear with me, one day. 357 OPS. The next highest is Mark Canna. He's gone. Next highest is Daniel Vogelback. Ha. And the next highest is Jeff McNeil, which is about 25 points lower than Brandon Nimmo. And by the way, not exactly a big stolen base guy. Is it now important to put a stolen base guy in the leadoff spot? I would say it's added. Yeah. Like, you still need to get on base. So I'll give you an example. If you're going to have a 301 on base like Starling Marte had this year, that's not good enough, even if you go out and steal 25 bases. Starling Marte who, by the way, is about to begin a rehab assignment, which is hilarious. But, hey, I guess for him, he wants to prove he could come back and kind of build momentum going into the offseason. But Starling Marte stole 24 bases in 86 games. So he was on pace to have a 40 stolen base season. That's great. I'd love that for my leadoff hitter. But if you're only going to get on base 30% of the time, it ain't worth it. So I think the answer to your question, Fred, is if there's somebody that could at least come close to Nimmo's on base, and steal a bunch of bases, I'm game. But I don't think it's a good idea to force-feed somebody that's not that. As far as Mauricio's concerned, especially in the finale of this series, one of the knocks on Ronnie Mauricio is that he doesn't... <coughs> excuse me, I know, I'm still coughing, it's ridiculous. Um, that he doesn't draw a lot of walks. That he's not an on-base guy. And so far since being called up... He's only walked three times until the finale of the series where he walked two times. Is he going to turn into a guy that can get on base at a high enough level where you'd put him in the leadoff spot? I don't know, man. He's got to prove it. Like this season in the minor leagues in Syracuse, we'll use his numbers at Syracuse where he had a really good season. He got on base 35% of the time, 346 on base. I think I'd be good with that. I think if he goes 346 and is going to steal 25 bases, yes. And here's why. Even though Nimmo gets on base more, his singles are singles. Mauricio's singles, half the time, are going to be doubles. So, yeah. We'll talk a lot more about Nimmo during this offseason. Now, let's jump in to the spring spring training, to the season ticket issue. And I'll start with Casey Manning, who wrote a very (coughs) angry email about his renewal. And then we'll get into some of the details. Casey writes, Evan, I realize you're a full season ticket holder, so this doesn't affect you. But this needs to be addressed for those of us that can't afford it. Keep in mind, this franchise just had the most embarrassing season in Major League history. Shit the bed, sold at the deadline and told us we might not be going for it next year. They have the audacity to downgrade postseason access for each tier of season ticket holders with a barely noticeable update on their renewal site. As a 40-game holder, I've been guaranteed a full strip forever. Now it's down a half a strip 
while a 20-game holder goes from half a strip down to a quarter strip. If I didn't ask about it and double-check with my rep, I would have had no idea. The team is officially on my last nerve. This is disgraceful, and they need to be called out for it. I guess my thousands of dollars spent on this shitty baseball team over the years is worth even less than I imagined. Maybe you can get an inside scoop being somewhat connected to the club. I'm debating or not whether even to do it now that the value has just plummeted and some of us are already stretching to make it work because we love this team, which is stupid for some reason. Thanks a lot, Casey. So, yeah, they did a lot of stuff that I think is ridiculous. I think off a year in which, to Casey's point, you shit the bed, you cannot raise ticket prices. You cannot cut down access to 40-game plan holders and 20-game plan holders. You can't. You can't do anything that's negative to the customer when you effed the customer by being crappy and selling guys off. We all know the selling guys off thing was good for the long term. I support it. Casey, I think, supports it. But here's what it did if you were a plan holder of any amount of games. It made your tickets in the final two months of the year worthless. That's what it did. Made it worthless. So if you sell some of your games, because you can't go to every single game, they were worthless. And coming off of that, you're telling your customer either you're going to pay more or we're going to give you less for what you're paying. Here are some details on what they're doing. One guy told me I got a half season in section 134. They raised the price from 2800 to 3200 Cutting down on the playoff strips on half season ticket holders, like Casey mentioned. I did hear from one guy, Jose, who wrote me, full season in promenade, same price, I'm good. I also heard that a 20-game plan went up 20%, and they took away the Yankees. I also heard a Saturday plan was increased by 15%. I also heard that somebody who sits in Promenade 409 got raised 20%. For me, I I know what my bill was. They raised me about 12%. I don't care if it's 2%. 5%, 9%, 15%. When you suck, I don't care how much you spend, and you're coming off a bad baseball season or a bad basketball season or a bad football season, It takes balls to raise the prices on your customers. I have said that about the Jets when they did it. I said it about the Yankees when they did it. I've said it about every franchise, so I'm going to say it about the Mets. You can't do that. Now, you can because there are some people, hi, I'm one of them, who are going to buy it anyway. I don't know if Casey's going to buy it. I don't know if a lot of the people listening are going to buy it, but some of us are so schmucky I was going to, it's not even loyalty because you could be a loyal guy or gal. If they raise you enough and you don't have the money, you're not going to buy it. Like I had to have a conversation with my wife. Conversation was pretty much, Hey baby, they're raising our prices. I'm going to renew. And she said, I understand. (laughs) Certain things are not negotiable. But when you do this off a bad year, it takes balls. And I don't think it should happen. Like I think it's wrong. And I think it's especially wrong to take these plan holders and tell them your plan is worth less. And this, the, the playoff thing is probably the worst thing I've heard. That's the worst thing I've heard. Because why? Like, why would you take away access to playoff tickets? Why? That, to me, I think bothers me more than anything else I heard. A part of being a season ticket holder, whether it's 40 games, 80 games, 20 games is access to the playoffs in this fantasy world that they're there. You can't take that away. And here's the other thing. I'm sure many Met fans feel this way, but the customer is going to feel this way even more. You better spend. And I'm not overly worried that they're not. I think there's a trust in Steve Cohen. But you raised our prices for 2024. That means 2024 better be a year in which you try to win. 2024 can't be a transition to 25 or 26, not when you raise some people 20%, not when you raise some people 10%, not when you took valuable games away from people. You have to add. 
if they had done this last year, and I know for some that they have, I haven't had a raise in a decade. Like, I'll be the first to tell you. And I'm glad that they haven't done it. But if you're going to raise ticket prices, can you do it off of a 101-win season? Like, last year would have been the perfect year to do it. You spent a lot of money during the offseason. You set your payroll into record territory. And you won games. Like, of course people will always be annoyed when you raise their tickets. It doesn't matter. But it's easier to do. It's just a little bit easier to do when you've gone out and you've won 101 games. Here's the other thing that bothers me. And this is an optic issue. I don't need to hear that, well, there's going to be new additions to City Field. As if this is connected to raising our ticket prices. Well, don't worry. City Field's going to be nicer. Okay, what are you doing for us? There's a big screen TV now. Super. What's next? I got to hear that the Clover Club is being tripled in size. We don't have access to the Clover Club. Most people do not have access to the Clover Club. If you sit in the promenade, you're not in the Clover Club. If you sit in my section, the Excelsior Club or the Piazza Club, you're not in the Clover Club. Nobody's in the Clover Club. If you buy really, really, really high-end tickets, which is cool. I bought one game this year, took my wife. It was great. Yeah, because they suck, so the prices got discounted so much on SeatGeek. It's cool to go once in a while, but you can't tell us. Hey, don't worry. You're raising your prices, but don't worry. On the back end, you're going to get a nicer Clover Club. What? That's like raising the taxes on the middle class and saying, don't worry, the Yacht Club's going to be nicer. Great. <laughs> what the hell does that do for us? I mean, it's nice that you're making the Clover Club bigger, but do you think that Casey Manning gives a rat's ass about it? Do you think that Jose in the promenade, that's a real person who uh, DM'd me, you think he gives a rat's ass about the Clover Club? Come on. Clover Club. I hope I'm not in the Clover Club this year. You know why? I'm in the Clover Club when the team sucks and the SeatGeek prices come down. <laughs> then I say, hey, hon, want to go to a game that only costs $125 a ticket instead of $900 a ticket? And she says, cool, let's go. Frustrating. Congratulations, by the way, to Jet Williams and Christian Scott, your minor league position player of the year, your minor league pitcher of the year. We'll talk a little bit about the Binghamton Mets Somerset Patriots series on the next Rico, as well as this four-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies. Appreciate the emails. You can email us anytime. TheRicoB at gmail.com. TheRicoB at gmail.com. Man, this season's almost over. We got a four-game series against the Phillies coming up in Philly. We got a three-game series at City against Miami. And then we wrap it up with three more against the Phillies to end the season. So Phillies, Marlins, Phillies, and then we mercifully end this season. Thank you very much for listening to another edition of Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.